The soft beams of the golden desert light had barely risen over the hills of Jerusalem. It was Friday morning. A a noisy mob came storming into the building. Pilate was presumably disturbed from the loud commotion. With a great sigh of exasperation, he likely pondered how he found himself here. Why was he ruling over the province of Judea? Did the gods not favor him? Or maybe he was just unlucky. Pilate was assigned to govern some of the most despised people in the empire, the Jews. Their archaic, outdated religion was a constant source of annoyance. It was like the itch of an insect bite that never ceased. Tolerable, yet forever irritating. They were always rambling on about their religious laws and traditions, constantly boasting about the temple that Caesar allowed Herod to build. They also refused to eat perfectly good food and would not relent in telling of its offense to their so-called God. The Jews, what a great pest, a thorn in Pilate's side. What burden had they brought him today? Had one of his soldiers insulted one of their traditions? Or a Roman citizen offended one of their sensibilities with an offering of swine to the gods? Perhaps they gathered to demand the release of one of their prisoners as was customary during their feast. Upon entering the room, Pilate found Caiaphas, the high priest, with the usual party of his religious zealots. They were dressed as always in their religious garb. This apparently was the clothing of a pious Jew, but it only served as a constant reminder to Rome as their unwillingness, of their unwillingness to submit to their true masters. It was not long before the religious leaders began screaming all sorts of accusations at the seemingly harmless man in the center of them. He claims to be a king against Caesar, one shouted. Another exclaimed, he claims to be sent by God. Others accuse him of offenses to Rome. He is forbidding the Jews from paying taxes to Caesar. It seems odd that the Jews would bring one of their own before the Roman authorities that they so greatly disdained. They must really hate this man. It was not as if they cared for anything for the empire or Caesar. Was this not the reason for their constant rebellion? To be freed from the tyranny of foreign rule? Perceiving that it was from envy that they had brought this man to him, rather than some offense to Rome, Pilate began to question the Galilean. It isn't clear exactly what struck Pilate, but he realized very quickly this was a very different kind of man. Perhaps it was the prisoner's steady gaze as he calmly but firmly answered the governor's questions, knowing full well his probable and near death. Or maybe it was his posture as he stood confidently yet humbly, as if he were a free man. If not that, possibly it was the witty, almost seemingly rehearsed nature of the prisoner's responses. In actuality, this man said very little. But it was was as if he transcended all other men in the room, having thoughts far exceeding their capacity to understand. Did he not know that Pilate had the power to rescue him from death? The Jew was present at his trial, but also entirely absent at the same time. His body was there, but his mind was in a lofty place. Pilate was only partway through his questions before he was interrupted and informed that his wife had suffered great pains through the night with visions of the man that now stood before him. 
appearing somewhat perplexed by the prisoner's unwillingness to answer straightforwardly, Pilate was forced to conclude there was nothing that this man was guilty of, at least not guilty of anything that was any of that concerned Pilate or Rome. Perhaps if this man was at least beaten, it would appease the Jews' desires for, desire for bloodshed. And so a scourging took place. However, it became quickly evident to Pilate, no matter how severe the beating, it would not placate the crowds. The mob roared, roared, Barabbas, give us Barabbas, free Barabbas. They howled for the freedom of the murderer rather than this Jesus. Though somewhat hesitant in order to prevent in order to prevent a riot from breaking out, Pilate satisfied their, blood, their lust for blood by pronouncing that Jesus should be crucified. The last thing Pilate needed was another riot breaking out in his province. Though the governor did not believe this man was guilty of death, it ultimately made little difference in the end what happened to him. In reality, he was just another Jew even if he was a respectable or peculiar one. However, in a seemingly superstitious and weak moment, Pilate announced before all he was clean of this man's blood, a statement that couldn't have been further from the truth. Whatever Pilate thought or felt about Jesus, when the final verdict was in, his ruling was indifference. Perhaps Jesus was a man to respect, perhaps a good man, but certainly not a man to revere, and certainly not a man to worship as a god. Pilate's indifference exemplifies so many, even today, even in our modern world. People respect Jesus. People like Jesus. He's easy to like. But when it comes down to it, committing one's life to Jesus is an entirely different thing. For most, it seems pretty trivial. Why would my opinion about an executed Jewish rabbi from 2,000 years ago have any bearing on my life now, let alone my eternal destiny? Jesus once asked his disciple, who do you say that I am? If that question were to be asked today, you're likely to hear a good moral teacher, a respectable leader, a compassionate and loving man, a pacifist, a wise sage, a religious reformer. But frankly, Jesus didn't leave room between his claims and his teachings for people to comfortably fit him into one of those categories. These kinds of ideas about Jesus actually re re reveal indifference and apathy toward Jesus because it entirely ignores what he actually said and did. People respect Jesus but just not really enough to believe him, and certainly not enough to obey him. Jesus was entirely exclusive. He was what we would consider a narrow-minded man. In our culture, he would be considered an intolerant man. Jesus did not accept any other way but his. He will not accept any other person but himself. He is the only way through whom we can know God. Jesus himself said, I am the bread of life. I am the true vine. I am the light of the world. I am the good shepherd. I am the door. I am the resurrection. And I am the way, the truth, and the life. 
he declared to the people, do not think that I have come, come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. <clears throat> the sword was the sword of truth. Jesus knew there was a war going on, not one fought with human hands, but one that was being fought within the human heart. It was the war of truth. Jesus told Pilate that Friday morning when he questioned him, For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Jesus made it clear. Everyone who is of the truth listens to him. They believe him. They obey him. And for those who do not listen to Jesus, he told them, whoever is not for me is against me. To live a life that is apathetic or indifferent to Jesus is to oppose Jesus by his own definition. He will accept nothing less than the entirety of your life, utterly and completely devoted to him. So the question for you, the question for you is what will you make of Jesus' Easter? Who do you say that Jesus is? To end with the words of the famous apologist C.S. Lewis, I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says that he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him. You can kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He didn't intend to. <clears throat> the angry crowd. Oh, another self-righteous religious teacher. He claims to be the only way to God. So intolerant, so unloving. Even his disciples think that they're better than us. God is with them. I know those fishermen. I know what they were like. You know, I hear, I hear he endorses cannibalism, eating his body, drinking his blood. They say his disciples run naked through the streets. The religious leaders. These disciples of this Jesus are, are radicals and vandals, terrorists threatening to destroy the temple. I hear they meet in secret, hiding in the gardens of Gethsemane. They even say he dishonors himself by washing their feet like a servant. Ugh. See? Even the religious disagree with this so-called prophet, proof that religion is a sham. I hear it took a great crowd of armed guards to subdue him, and many were thrown to the ground. They say he cut off a man's ear in his attempt to escape. We must discredit him coming into the city with a fanfare, cleansing the temple, teaching boldly in the temple, 
making claims about himself. Now, the crowds that witnessed the resurrection of Lazarus are beginning to bear witness of him. You know, they say he made Lazarus into a zombie. Look, the world has gone after him. We must discredit him publicly. I know, we'll ask him impossible questions to stump him, to disgrace him. <laughs> he, he humiliates the religious leaders in a way that he answers their questions. At least it's fun to see them boiling over in their anger. He would just, if he would only just change his message like other good teachers, he would save himself. His answers are infuriating, and he accuses us with his parables. We are the withered fig tree. He calls us whitewashed tombs. Because he chooses to side against us, he is our enemy. Why won't he just change his message to fall in line and save himself? Like all religious people, he's vying for power. I hear that Joseph Arimathea will bury him in his family tomb. Obviously, he's connected to the Sanhedrin. Obviously, he's connected to the wealthy elite. One minute, he rides into town like the Messiah, stirring up the people. How dare he try to claim that authority? The next, he says, the Messiah will die. Ridiculous. Everyone knows that according to the Mosaic law, the Messiah will live forever. He disrupts the commerce in the temple, flipping over tables and driving out the animals, money pouring out onto the floor. He disrupts the temple sacrifices. We demand, by what authority are you doing these things? His answers are meant to make us look like hypocrites and turn the people against us. He must be stopped. He must be destroyed. I remember. I remember this rabbi's teachings. Let the bear, dead bury the dead. The first will be last. We should hate our families, not to mention his, his position on divorce and hell, every sermon about hell. Be perfect, sell everything. No wonder he is cursed. I'm no God follower, but surely the Son of God wouldn't be abandoned by God like this, killed with criminals. Even they mock him. The only people upset are prostitutes and tax collectors. I'm religious, but at least I'm not one of them. He is cursed by God, and these disciples of his are such an unholy group. Fishermen, tax collectors, and don't get me started on those Zebedee brothers. Not a single follower is round to even help him carry the cross. Even his own disciples betray him and deny him. One of his closest friends denies that he even knows him. You know, I hear he was betrayed with a kiss. 30 pieces of silver. That was a large sum for Jesus' betrayal, but it was money well spent. At least our lives are easier now. Oh yeah, and it pleases God, I'm sure. Maybe we should offer money for testimony against this blasphemous man. Many have come forward with stories of his miracles and divine claims, but none of those testimonies line up in the way we want them to. He is blasphemed. What further need do we have of witnesses? He deserves death. Cover his face and beat him and slap him. Oh, prophesy to us, Christ, who is hitting you? And yet, for, and yet, there for a moment, the words of Isaiah come to me. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. They say, he won't defend himself. Well, he must be guilty. If, if this blasphemer was actually the Messiah, 
we would be the blasphemers. No, no, he is not a prophet. He is disgusting, and he deserves the punishment now brought upon himself. In fact, we're being merciful. Wait till the Romans get a hold of him. Strip him and put a scarlet robe on him. Twist together a crown of thorns and put it on his head, a reed in his right hand. Hail, king of the Jews. <laughs> Bring him to Pilate. Pilate says he finds no guilt in this man. No guilt for the charges we bring against him? What does Pilate know of blasphemy? We have a law, and by that law, we, he ought to die because he made himself out to be the son of God. Away with this man and release, us, and, and release for us Barabbas. Crucify! Crucify him! I heard he wants to be king and overthrow the government. They say that he said to Pilate, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. If Pilate releases this man, he is no friend of Caesar. Everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. Pilate says, behold your king, but we cry, away with him, away with him, crucify him. We have no king but Caesar. We have no king but Caesar. Crucify him. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers. So he did not open his mouth. This reminds me. Oh, we must resume our duties. Passover is here, and it is time for the slaughter of the lambs for the Sabbath dinner. They use this whip, and it's got this bone and metal in it, and they rip open his back. The tendons and muscle and skin are shredded. Then he's nailed to the cross. Break his legs, pierce his side. Crucifixion, it's so unclean. I'll be glad when this is over. It'll be such a relief, and there's much work that needs to be done. God has given us strict punishments for not following the laws. God says to stone a man who picks up sticks on the Sabbath. And there Jesus was, healing people, picking up food on the Sabbath. We must keep the law perfectly. When we don't, the blood and the guts of animals are necessary. But they can't cover all our sins permanently. So our sin requires this never-ending line of offering and repentance. And offering and repentance. Crucifixion! These criminals get what they deserve. And we get a little entertainment. I feel like I deserve to see them beaten and bloodied for what they've done. Again, the words of Isaiah haunt me. I gave my back to those who strike me and my cheeks to those who pluck out the beard. I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting. He claims to be king, a rival set against Caesar, a threat to Roman rule. He claims authority. He's worshiped people devoting themselves to him. He has misled the nation and causing a revolt. He has forbidden paying tribute to the emperor. He is under Roman arrest. He must be guilty. This Jesus says he is one with the Father. He says that he is the life and he gives eternal life. He receives worship. He claims to be the true Israel, that he precedes Abraham. I am. He can forgive sins, this man is to be given the same glory as our Father God. He teaches with an authority above Scripture. He claims to be the true temple. 
the visual, the visual representation of God in the flesh. He is the Son of God, the Messiah, the Son of Man who will come again on the clouds of heaven. Where are his so-called miracles now? He wears a robe and a crown. He's a pretender to the throne, and I hate him. I despise him. He was despised and forsaken of man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Why do Isaiah's words keep coming to my mind? Hey, you, who's going to save himself, you who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Even those who crucified him are mocking him. Save yourself. He saved others, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross now. Then we'll believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him if he delights in him, for he said, I am the son of God. Even nailed to the cross, he continues to preach and spout scripture. His friends with the criminal, because he is himself a criminal. He is paying the price. It is finished even nailed to the cross. He continues to offer forgiveness and eternal life to the criminal beside him, as if God isn't on his side, but God has forsaken him. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because God's wrath is poured out upon you. Even the sun hides itself and there's darkness all around him. The earth shakes as a sign of God's judgment. He is paying the price for sin. It is finished. At least I'm not the, like those religious nuts. I don't go around telling people about Jesus. I'm spiritual. My faith is private. I go to church, but I'm not like what she would call devoted. I don't even like hanging out with those types of Christians. I take the parts of the Bible that I like, and I ignore the parts that I don't. Jesus just helps me feel better. I just wish he would have changed his message in some areas. And I'm certainly not like, not like those in the crowd at the crucifixion either. I'm, I'm a good person. I was raised in the church. I mean, I've sinned, but not like them. I don't need that kind of saving. The blood, the pain, the suffering, sometimes I just don't get it. I do my service. I give my tithe, but I don't need to be changed. Surely this man was the son of God. Surely this man was innocent. As the narrative of Jesus' crucifixion nears its end, three out of the four gospel writers introduce us to the Roman centurion. The length of this man's appearance in the narrative is brief, one to two sentences, but his impact cannot be understated, and it surely was appointed by God. We're told in Matthew, Mark, and Luke that after observing Jesus die, the centurion claims, surely this was the Son of God. Surely this man was innocent. Kind of struck me as I was studying it. This is the only person from the Passover supper until Jesus is laid in the tomb that's recorded to utter these words. 
Plenty of people, like we've talked about, reviled him, mocked him, had nothing to do with him. And one man sticks out. He wasn't the only man there, but the Bible records this one man proclaiming that Jesus is who he said he was. It's almost easy to miss his impact. I admit many times I read over it. But these are the critical words about who we are talking about tonight. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It was probably early in the morning when this man was raised, had to go out. He was either overnight serving or somehow he got on the group of people who were going to put this man to death. Jesus Christ had been led to Pilate's house. He had then been led out into the courtyard to be flogged by Roman soldiers because Jews could not do this. They did not have the right to put a person to death. So it was the Roman soldiers who had the responsibility. We don't know if the centurion was there during the flogging. We don't know if he was there when Jesus was led down the road carrying a cross. Who He was so exhausted, so beaten, they asked another man to carry his cross for him. They went up the hill to Golgotha, and Jesus was nailed to a cross. Historians believe that this is the most painful method of death ever in existence. Jesus was raised on the cross. People around him were mocking him. The people who were supposed to believe in him said that they wouldn't. People were saying lies about him, saying that he wasn't who he said he was, that he was not God, that he was just a man, that they would not believe him unless he did something, unless he got off the cross. You said you would raise from the dead, well, come down off that cross. Jesus didn't respond to them. As we've talked about in Isaiah 53, 400 years before this event, it was prophesied that Jesus would remain silent as a lamb before its shears. Instead of returning evil for evil, Jesus prayed to the Father that he would forgive them because they did not know what they were doing. In addition, instead of returning evil for evil, Jesus looked out for his mother and asked one of his disciples to take care of her. The centurion had been observing what apparently was not a normal man. Surely, had Jesus been simply a man, there would have had something come out of his heart, that sin nature that all of us have, that would have, for some reason or other, proved that he deserved what he was going through. But he didn't. If ever there was a person who walked this earth that did not deserve punishment, it was Jesus Christ. At the very moment, it, it's now probably around noon. For three hours, it had been dark. May have been a solar eclipse. May have been something as natural as that. But then the centurion, while watching, Jesus cries out to the Father, talking to him personally, says, Father, why have you forsaken me? We know why. Jesus is 
took our sin and he took the weight that God then had to turn his back on him. And then, after looking out and showing kindness and mercy and compassion from the cross, he yells out, It is finished! And breathes his last, and the earth shook. Again, another natural occurrence. But, I can see in this the divine purpose and the sum of all of these things in darkness coming over the earth, in a man not behaving as a man would in such an awful circumstance, in the earth shaking at the very moment, and a man being able to say it is finished and having the ability to decide when his life ends. Again, what something no man, no mere mortal can do. It says that after observing these things, the centurion and the people with him walk away beating their breast. Why were they moved? Was this a mere man? No. This was not a mere man. If we look back in partway through Jesus' ministry here on earth, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? They say, you know, Elijah, you know, a good, good teacher. And he says, who do you say that I am? And Peter responds, the Christ, the son of the living God. The exact same words that the centurion uses. And Jesus declares, blessed are you, Peter. God's favor is upon you because this did not come from human wisdom, but the spirit of God has chosen to reveal this to you. Paul, writing some 30 years later in his letter to the Corinthians, says that I decided to know nothing amongst you except Christ crucified. At the end of that letter, he goes back to that same thought and says, I delivered to you what was of first importance, the Jesus Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection. The single most important thing that humans can discuss or ponder is who is the person of Jesus and what does his death, his burial, and resurrection mean? Paul writes, and it's fitting for what we're talking about tonight, he proclaims that this wisdom, the knowledge of salvation that comes through Jesus Christ, is a wisdom that came from God which the rulers of his age did not understand. If they had known who Jesus Christ was, Paul says they would not have crucified him. Think about, this wasn't supposed to happen, right? It was an accident. The Pharisees had been looking out. I mean, for thousands of years, God's people had been waiting for a Messiah. It saddens me to think they'd missed it. It wasn't supposed to happen this way. The Messiah was supposed to live forever. But lest before we say, well, they did that. They crucified him. It's my sin. It's our sin. I think about this song that I loved in junior high that says, my sin yells crucify. My sin yells louder than the mob that day. Crucify him. And to think that God is good enough that though 
I deserve death, that he would come and save me, his enemy? If Jesus Christ was purely a man, his death on the cross would be just that, a death. We wouldn't be talking about it. It really wouldn't matter. But I'm glad to tell you tonight that like the centurion, Jesus Christ is the Son of God. I don't want to be that person that washes his hands, that says, I want nothing to do with him. Yeah, maybe he doesn't deserve what he got, but it doesn't really matter to me. As Jordan mentioned, that's not an option. The Bible says that every single person who's ever lived, aside from Jesus, has sinned and is therefore responsible for payment of that sin. We cannot say that Jesus doesn't matter to me. He does whether you want to recognize it or not. And I don't want to be the person who says, okay, well, Jesus matters to me, therefore I'm going to hate him because he has nothing to do with what I want to be doing. By God's grace and mercy, let us be the people proclaiming that Jesus is the Son of God. Because what was accomplished on that cross that night was not just merely a death What was accomplished that night, as we just sang, was God providing the lamb. For millennia, God had set aside a system that pointed forward to Christ. That said that atonement would be made through the one perfect and spotless lamb. It wasn't supposed to happen that way, but wait, it really was. God had a perfect plan, and as Rick mentioned in the beginning, it was good. It was awful. Man, what Jesus went through is awful. When I think about it, I wish that I, I wish that we wouldn't have sinned. I wish that Jesus wouldn't have had to die. But what an amazing God we serve, and what an amazing God he is, that he would choose to go through what he did, so that he could redeem us. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.